0: Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com.
1: President Biden isn't on the ballot, but there's so much at stake in these midterm elections, um, results that may shape the next couple of years. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River, just six days before Election Day in 2022. Joining us this hour, Megan Goldberg, assistant professor of American politics at Cornell College. Hi, Megan. Welcome back.
2: Hi, Ben. Great to be here.
1: Chris Larimer with us as well, professor of political science at the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls. Hi, Chris. Hello, Ben. I'd like to reach out to our listeners this hour as we are in the final stretch, the final days. Perhaps you've already voted, early voting going on already. Uh, what issue has decided or will decide your vote in this midterm election? We'd like to hear from you this hour. Inflation, climate change, abortion rights, threats to democracy. Uh, the president giving a speech tonight uh, 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 that will talk about uh, hope, uh, what he sees as the uniting anyone, uh, regardless of their uh, political, um, whether they're conservatives or liberals. Um, what's on your mind uh, just six days away before from this election? one 9100 one eight six six seven eighty ninety one hundred, river-to-river at iowapublicradio.org. Uh, is our email let me list off some so so much to talk about there we'll have to narrow it down we only have a certain amount of time yeah. I want to find out Megan sure. in just a moment from you and Chris what is top of mind for you let me just run through some of the headlines we're seeing in in terms of politics um, uh, a federal judge in Arizona barring an election monitoring group from activities including taking photos carrying guns near ballot boxes uh, we had a um, Republican opponents of Donald Trump, led by Representatives Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger from our um, neighboring state of Illinois, campaigning to help Democrats. There's something. J.D. Vance, he's the Republican nominee for Senate in Ohio yesterday evening in a town hall event, said he would accept the results of this election, but also said he stood by his false claims that the 2020 election had been stolen. And then Elon Musk said he won't reinstate banned Twitter accounts for weeks. Uh, He pledged this this morning. He won't allow anyone back on the platform before there is a clear process to do so. Of course, uh, uh, former President Trump and other banned users uh, affected by this decision. What's on your mind, River to River listeners? 1-866-780-9100. Let's go to you first, Chris. What are you watching as these final days of this campaign take away.
0: I guess what I'm trying to figure out is the extent to which this is going to be, you know, what we think of as a typical midterm election or if this is going to be something unusual in large part fueled by a surge in turnout among younger voters or voters who lean democratic as a result of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. I think, you know, you you look at this This election cycle and you take a step back and you think about everything that is pushing kind of pushing arrows to the right in the sense that, you know, it's a midterm election with a Democratic president and the Democratic president who's relatively unpopular nationally and in many swing states. As you said, you know, the concerns about or anxiety about the economy, inflation, the just the price of goods or the cost of living kind of top concern for voters and, and the Biden administration not receiving very high marks on that, on that particular issue. Um, Voter enthusiasm starting to move a little bit in favor of the Republican party. You know, the generic ballot test starting to trend a little bit toward the Republicans. So all those arrows kind of moving to the right, the question out there is, is that that one arrow in terms of the reaction to the Dobbs decision, is that enough to offset all those other arrows and really push it back to the left? So it's really, I guess, trying to take a step back and see, what are we hearing about turnout? What are we hearing about youth turnout or any sort of demographic group that might be leaning to the left as far as how big that arrow is pushing back the other way?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Let me follow up there, Megan. I want your other comments. While, while Chris mentioned abortion rights here, of course, that's a, a local issue as well. Last Friday, lawyers for our governor, Kim Reynolds, argued that an Iowa judge should allow a law passed back in 2018 that bans most abortions to take effect Um, That's three years after that measure was ruled unconstitutional. Uh, The governor's lawyers made the case last week that the judge should set aside a 2019 permanent injunction uh, preventing Iowa from enforcing that law that would block abortions once uh, cardiac uh, activity can be detected, the so-called fetal heartbeat uh, law. That's around six weeks, uh, six weeks before many women even know they're pregnant. Uh, Comment on this issue Megan, has abortion access figured into the campaign heavily throughout? Has it faded?
2: Yeah, so I, I want to echo first everything that Chris said. Um in terms of thinking about Dobbs as a sort of countervailing force to all the other sort of politics as usual, election uh or, or things that affect elections. Um, but I think the other thing for Dobbs is that I'm sort of looking at is the geographic distribution um because As states have considered uh, abortion policies, um, we're getting sort of like a polarized policy environment, where in some states, um, you know, they haven't seen a change in their access to uh, reproductive rights, or as we've seen in other states with strict abortion restrictions, um, you know, it sort of has a chilling effect uh, or a a legal effect on access to other medication that women can get um, that's not really related directly to abortion. Um, so I think that it's possible we could see sort of different uh, mobilizing forces depending on where you are, because it sort of depends on what reproductive rights look like in your state. Um, so I think that in places where this has stayed top of mind because they're experiencing it, uh, you know, I think we could see it maybe a stronger effect, especially on young voters um, who this affects perhaps the most, um, but that in other places where maybe it seems like things have cooled off because their access and their lives haven't changed that much. Um, You know, I I don't know. I'm I'm sort of looking to see if Dobbs will be as effective there in a state like Massachusetts or California in mobilizing voters.
1: Mm -hmm. 1-866-780-9100. Listeners, what's on your mind as we count off the final days before this midterm? Let's uh, go to our first caller. Chris is in Des Moines. Welcome to the program, Chris. Hi, how are you doing today? Fine, what's on your mind with this election just ahead of us?
4: Well, with, uh, my, what's on my mind with this election is dealing with the, uh, what they're not dealing with is the uh, racism and the bigotry that has been going on. Through the whole thing, and nobody is saying anything. Nobody is. They, they just act like, oh, it's oh, the racism is fine, the discrimination is fine. We
2: mm-hmm. have
4: a senator and a governor getting ready to meet tomorrow with the uh, Trump. That's a bigot, uh, and they act like this is okay. Well, how do you think people of color feel seeing your senator and your governor with this guy that is a bigot? Mm-hmm. very Crit- racist, and Crit- they know it, but they Chris, act like it's okay.
1: Chris in Des Moines, may I ask if you're a person of color? And if so, uh, what would yeah. be your, your very clear message um, uh, to voters listening uh, to elected officials right now?
4: Well, what I would say, first of all, if you politicians are running and you keep saying that you are
5: speaking
4: for us, how the heck can you speak for us as people of color when you don't even come see us? You don't come talk to us. You don't, and when we try to set up something for uh, the, the folks that come talk, they come up with all kinds of excuses why they can't come. Or they'll try to send a representative, but it ain't the person. We want the person running. But we hear all kinds of excuses, and that doesn't come out in these political things. It, it, it doesn't come out how black folks are being turned down by Republicans and Democrats when it comes to, uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to, to these debates or to come talk to us about whatever their issues are. When okay. it comes to people of color, we are totally ignored. Uh, we, we're not even being dealt with. Okay, hey, Chris, sad. it's bad. Yep. This is this is 2022.
1: Chris, we we hear you loud and clear from Des Moines. Thank you so much. Um, let's go to another caller, Jacqueline in Cedar Falls. Welcome to the program.
5: Hi, thank you for having me. Sure um, thing. With you guys talking about how Elon Musk would reinstate banned users on Twitter, I also heard from him that he would. Wants to change the process to get verified on Twitter to have that blue checkmark next to your account, and that instead of being an approval process, that he would make it an eight dollar a month charge.
1: Mm. Yeah. And, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Developments there, Jacqueline. Well, anything to add before we get comment on that? I want to ask our, our listener, our, our guests, about Elon Musk taking over Twitter.
3: Um.
5: It to me, it would feel like. People are paying for free speech, and a lot of people would pay to get the checkmark and feel like it would give them some sort of protection from losing their job or whatever their harmful statements could be.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Interesting. Jacqueline in Cedar Falls. Um, uh, Chris, what do you have to say about that, um, uh, the developments with Twitter? It's been such a powerful force in uh, shaping uh, uh, politics in our recent years, hasn't it?
0: It has. I mean, and in large part, I mean, we know that people are increasingly turning to social media for political information for just to rely on for news. So as these changes keep coming, you know, the, the big question is, does it does it become a platform where, as as Jacqueline just mentioned, and I hadn't heard that about the change in terms of giving that blue check mark, does that create a, the, the danger, of course, that people are, would probably be concerned with is that it, cre- it would create an environment where, you know, there would be a false sense of sort of trust or authority on a topic because someone has a, a blue check mark who then uses that platform to to spread misinformation or disinformation about the the American political system. So I think that that continues to be a concern. I think that's what people are watching to see what does Elon Musk do now that he does have Twitter. How does that change? How pe- the, the reliance people have with Twitter, the trust they have with Twitter. I think all those things are just sort of up in the air right now. Mm-hmm.
1: Megan, your view on Twitter.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I know there's a lot of concern um, over Twitter. Uh, you know, I think in terms of like the blue check, I think the other sort of big concern I have in terms of democracy is that those blue checks are also an indication that like the person running the account is like the actual person. Um, and so it... I know there's this sense that it's just for people with huge follower counts, but it's also for important figures in our like information environment, local journalists, um, where it's not like newspapers and local TV stations are going to be able to support all of their uh, reporters and journalists having verified accounts. Um, But right now, and this is also true for candidates for local and state office, Um, you'll see those are some of the people with low follower counts, but they're verified because Twitter has taken security measures to say, like, when you see a tweet from this person, from this account, it is that person or it's reflective of messaging from their office. And so it's really important in terms of weeding out. And that's not to say verified accounts never share misinformation, um, but you know it's coming from that person. Um, and so that's an important loss if you start thinking about charging it or changing the process, um, that it's going to harm local media and state level media uh, in a way that you know Twitter has really given them a platform.
1: Let's go back to the issues, the major issues we talked about, abortion access uh, moments ago. Let's talk about inflation, one that the uh, Republicans are pushing hard, especially in this final stretch. Um, in Inflation, it uh, seems to have given Republicans, according to polls, an edge in races across the country, are moving the needle, so to speak. Uh, l- let's just hear a couple of clips on that. Uh, here is a uh, some audio from a Uh, Charles Grassley ad, criticizing the Biden administration's economic policy.
6: Our country is at a crossroads again. Joe Biden is leading us into another recession. And Mike Franken wants to use Iowa's Senate seat to help pass Joe Biden's radical recession agenda. In Iowa, cost of living is draining wallets to pay for gas and groceries. Everything is more expensive and families are struggling to make ends meet. But Mike Franken thinks President Biden is doing a fabulous job.
1: Iowans know better. Let's turn to President Biden. He's accusing oil companies of war profiteering, pointing to the record profits as gas prices continue to put strain on uh, Americans already facing this record inflation. Uh, He threatened the companies with a windfall tax this week on corporate profits uh, announced during a press conference on Monday.
7: Their excess profits are going back to their shareholders and they're buying back their stock so the executive pays are going to skyrocket. Give me a break. Enough is enough. Look, I'm a capitalist. You've heard me say this before. I have no problem with corporations turning a fair profit and getting a return on their investment and innovation. But this is remotely what's happening. Oil companies, record profits today, are not because they're doing something new or innovative. Their profits are a windfall of war. windfall from the brutal conflict that's ravaging Ukraine and hurting tens of millions of people around the globe. You know, at a time of war, any company receiving historic windfall profits like this has a responsibility to act beyond their narrow self-interest of its executives and shareholders. I think they have a responsibility to act in the interest of their consumers, their community, and their country.
1: Okay, President Biden, earlier this week, let's talk about the economy and inflation. Megan, you first uh, on this one. What do you think about the the messaging from each of the major parties during this campaign on the economy, on inflation?
2: Yeah, so I I mean, I think that this is getting back to what Chris said earlier. I think this is like following classic political science. Like what we know about midterm elections is that the context, especially the economic environment, um, matters quite a bit. And, um, you know, there is one party who is the party in power is disadvantaged in a bad economy uh, and the party not in power is advantaged by it. And so it's it's exactly what I think I would have expected, right, is for Republicans to emphasize the economy, especially the parts that are, you know, sort of look the worst, like inflation, emphasize that again and again and again as something important so that voters are thinking about that in the ballot box. Um, and on the flip side, for Biden and Democrats to try to avoid blame and right there's kind of a very long conversation about uh the levers the president can actually pull and that the government can actually pull to to rapidly shift inflation um and the the power of that the political party um but they're going to shift away from you know accountability uh and blame for that because it's not good for their electoral success later on
1: Mm -hmm. Let's go to Marianne in Ames. Welcome to the program, Marianne. I think uh, the economy's on your mind as well?
0: Uh, Yes, absolutely. I um, would like to just point out that we're constantly hearing um, from the Republicans the concept of a free market. We don't want government intrusion. Get it out of business, correct? And yet what we're seeing now is the consequences of the free market. You know, the, The gas price is going up and yet there's record profits for the gas companies, hello, folks, that's called the free market. And if we want government to help the people, you can't have it both ways. And so I just want to point out that I feel like that the Republicans are being uh, dishonest with their constituents, and they're being hypocritical because they want the free market on the one side, but they want to play, uh, blame government for every ill that's going on.
1: Marianne, thanks for your view from Ames, one eight six six seven eighty ninety one hundred. 9100 Of course, those oil prices heavily influenced by the shock we had over eight months ago of Russia invading uh, Ukraine. Uh, Chris, weigh in here uh, on gas prices, overall inflation.
0: Well, I, I, I think Megan's absolutely right. The, the challenge for the party in power is if the economy turns south, particularly turning during a period where the party in power has unified control of the government, voters are going to look to the chief executive they're going to blame that party in power and so that's the difficulty for the Democratic Party right now and everything in the polls is is working against them as we talked about earlier right the the most recent Iowa polls show that 73% of Iowans think the country is on the wrong track right that you know again Biden's approval rating in Iowa is up a little bit but it's still only at 35 36% in Iowa and so it, it's a, it's difficult for the party in power when when the economy dips like this, or if there's the potential for a recession, because as Megan said, economic concerns are always top of mind for voters. That's, that's pretty typical in any election cycle that voters are going to be thinking about the cost of living or the price of goods or just be, the economy generally. And those can be, that's a pretty strong factor in terms of people's mobilization to vote. And it can also be a factor in terms of their vote choice. And so it's, it's, it was going to be a difficult democratic year or a difficult difficult election year for the Democratic Party, just being a midterm election with a Democrat in the White House. But then you add, you know, the concern about the economy, and that just, you know, escalates the difficulty for for Democrats this year.
1: I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, Chris, a big question about who will turn out for this election. Will our youngest Mm -hmm. voters, for instance, the Gen Zers, I've heard them called Zoomers uh, as well, will they turn out for this election? You are, of course, uh, in classes full of Zoomers, general Zers. Um, I interviewed last week two Iowa County auditors, uh, the auditors of Woodbury County, way in the northwest, and Dubuque County in the eastern part uh, of our state. They told me uh, early voting down significantly from the last midterm election, um, and they attributed that to the change, the, the lower or the smaller window for early voting uh, and, and some other uh, election laws there. Megan, uh, how do you say that? Do you see that perhaps we'll have lower number of early voters um, translating into more voters on election day?
2: I mean, so that that's sort of my guess at the moment. I think that we had so much early voting in 2020 because, I mean, if you think about it, right, we were still uh, approaching COVID very differently at the time a lot of folks did not feel comfortable sort of going to polling places on election day. Um, and also a lot of States made vote by mail and early voting more accessible in 2020 and have since sort of restricted access to early voting. Um, and so I think that for a lot of voters, um, early voting and vote by mail doesn't have the urgency that it does now. And so I think we're going to see a return to sort of the old, you know, in 2020 as we got those like early vote numbers, um, they, they tilted heavily Democratic, which isn't that surprising given the correlation between COVID behavior and uh, caution and partisanship. Um, but that is different than traditionally we saw early voting. Vote by mail was largely older voters, retired voters, and more Republican voters. And my my hunch is that we're seeing a return to that um, because we're just in a different environment now in 2022.
1: Chris, we have about a minute before we have to go to break. Do you see it the same way? What are you thinking about turnout here?
0: I do. I, I, I agree with Megan. And, and, you know, another part here is, to what we've seen in several recent polls is that while there's a little bit of a gap in terms of voter enthusiasm between Republican voters and Democratic voters, both groups of voters have relatively high enthusiasm about participating in this election. So that, to me, would suggest that if they're not engaging in early voting and given some of the changes early voting that they, they may be more likely to turn out on election day to get back to that sort of the their traditional method of participating in, in, in the political process so given the high levels of voter enthusiasm given the concerns of voters in terms of economic concerns or concerns about core social issues you know you would expect that that turnout would be up whether it's a, a, as high as it was in 2018, I think, is another question, because that was an extraordinarily high turnout year for midterm elections. It it may be that it's somewhere between 2018 and 2014.
1: Okay. On that note, we'll remind you, you can choose to vote uh, on Election Day or during the absentee voting period going on now, whichever is easier for you. Um, In-person absentee voting locations may be less crowded as well, something to think about. Um, Check out the uh, Iowa uh, website of the Secretary of State uh, to find out where you vote, Um, and we'll be back in just a few more minutes. Uh, Chris Larimer of the University of Northern Iowa, Megan Goldberg of Cornell College, and we'll go back to your calls to find out what issues are most on your mind to decide your vote in this midterm election. Back with more River to River in just a moment.
0: Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa. Presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com.
2: Once you become a sustaining member, all you have to do is sit back and listen. You'll appreciate the news and music here on IPR so much more knowing you're a part of making it happen. Support programs like the one you're listening to now. Start your sustaining contribution today.
1: We're back with this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Just six days from Election Day, of course, early voting going on now uh, up until the day before Election Day. You can, of course, vote on Election Day as is traditional. Megan Goldberg is with us of Cornell College. Chris Larimer of the University of Northern Iowa are two political analysts, and we're reaching out to you especially river to river listeners and asking what issue will decide your vote in this midterm election. We've had some other callers bring up issues that they think we're being ignored. Join us one 780 9100 one 780 Let's uh, go back to our phones. Francis in Ames. Welcome to the program.
3: Good afternoon. Uh, I would like to share my thoughts on uh, my frustration with both politicians and some of the voters who have an inability to think long term, basically beyond this election. And my most, uh, uh, the best example of that is uh, climate change and what we know about it, what we hear about it, what we're seeing, but yet uh, it never gets discussed. Uh the Obama administration tried to do something about it. The Trump administration said, "No, we don't want to do it. We're going to go backwards." Uh, Biden administration is trying to do something, but yet you hear these veiled threats from from uh, some Republican politicians saying, "Well, we can't do it. We can't afford it now." And that is that to me is a frustration because if we keep going in these two-year increments, you know, sometime down the road we're going to look back and say we made some really bad decisions. And we weren't paying attention, and and uh, and the environmental people have been telling us for a long time we've got a problem. We have got to do something, but we can't seem to decide to do it.
1: Yeah, Francis, we hear you uh, in Ames. Uh, yesterday's half of the program in, in, uh, was um, we had a climate scientist, Gene uh, Talkley, uh, devoted that time to yeah, you know, what this. Uh, how much that matters, what's at stake in terms of climate change. Uh, Chris, um, weigh in here. We've got the, the long window, the longer window of climate change as a concern mm-hmm. that uh, Francis brings up compared to shorter terms, which are what typically on voters' minds.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, and it's been a fundamental challenge for, for a long time. It's just to get people to think long term. And particularly when you're dealing with a, a, a period of time where there's heightened economic anxiety that becomes even more difficult to get people to think long term and you know you 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 uh, on top of that you have a period of sort of hyper partisanship that is focused on you know each every election cycle where we're to the point where it really is nearly a constant election where one election is over then the conversation shifts to the next election and as as France said the sort of that two year window that we just keep repeating um, I don't know that there's an easy fix there. It, I think it's just one of those tendencies of, of human nature, really, this the difficulty in thinking long-term. And you see it in the in the political process, as Francis said, or the policy process, you can think about the federal budgeting cycle, how difficult it is to to get back to a normal budget pattern when it comes to the federal budget, where it's not just one continuing resolution after another, where they're just trying to address these short-term crises to try to think more long-term. The last time we had... You know, kind of that regular budget process and and a budget surplus, you have to go back to the late 90s, 1998, 1999. So it may be that it takes a point where we get back to a little bit more firmer ground in terms of people's concerns about the economy, that maybe the concerns will then shift from more immediate concerns to thinking long term on things like climate change.
1: Megan, in our first half hour, we had a caller from Des Moines, Chris, uh, raising the issue of race, uh, feeling that that issue was being ignored uh, during this election cycle. Uh, What what are your thoughts on race and how that has shaped this campaign?
2: Yeah, you know, so I think that what's concerning to me is we have seen a shift in some races to, I mean, really explicit racial appeals. Um, you know, so I think that Chris is absolutely right. Um, I also think right we see race alive and well um, in political divisions. I know that Governor Kim Reynolds has been accused of using racial appeals in her one of her TV ads. You know that featured um, a black woman who's in Congress who is who is not, in fact, her opponent. Um, but sort of the, the symbology was there. Um, and we see this in races sort of across the country. We've seen a rise in explicit uh, racist language. Um, now we have also seen a rise in explicitly anti-Semitic language. Um, and so I think that this is really concerning, you know, for people who are looking at the U.S. as a multiracial, religiously pluralistic democracy um, and seeing pushback on that Uh and, you know, sort of that vision for America. And so I, I think that he's, he's right. Um, you know, I think, especially in Iowa, a majority white state, um, that that's a just a very justified position to hold as well.
1: River to River listeners, what issue is deciding your vote in this midterm election? One eight six six seven eighty ninety one hundred. Megan Goldberg with us of Cornell College. Chris Larimer, of the University of Northern Iowa. Back to the phones. Dave joins us from Des Moines. Sure glad to have you on board. Dave, uh, what issue do you want to bring up?
6: Good afternoon, crew. Um, it's a great, great discussion. But I think, to me, it's kind of obvious that uh, gas, diesel is... To me, it's it's probably the main, uh, it's my main concern, and it has to, goes hand in hand with the economy because everything is shipped, everything is either trucked in, shipped in by ship, train, it's all fuel, and two years ago, two and a half years ago, gas was two thirty a gallon, now it's you know almost twice that, not not twice that, but it's way up there, so it's it's a huge implication. Why to me prices are so darn high. And if they would just get that under control in the long run, I think a lot of the prices would come down.
1: Okay. Dave in Des Moines. Thank you so much. Let's go to another caller from Des Moines. Alex is with us. Hi, Alex.
5: Hi. Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to uh, contribute to the conversation as a, uh, former conservative from Northeast Iowa. Um, I was raised by George Bush voters. I voted for George Bush. Um, but since, I, since I've grown up, I've traveled, I've learned a lot, and I've started to lean left. But lately, um, I feel no urge to ever drift back to the right as they take a hard, hard turn to the right, it feels. And you see it all over the world in uh, the rise of fascism in Italy and Hungary. And those seem to be the people that the modern GOP holds up as examples of, of how they would like their party to act um, and all of the the racism and the anti-se- anti-Semitism that I feel coming from the the right side uh, just keeps pushing me further and further away from my roots uh, mm. as a conservative
1: Alex interesting perspective let's get comment from uh, Chris Larimer here that that is interesting of course we we track on this program uh, uh, plentiful commentary out there about. How each of the parties has changed over the years, and we say especially the GOP, Chris.
0: Well, I think that that's it, that's been one of the main storylines going back to you know the the 2016 election um, and into into the 2020 election is how far has the Republican Party shifted um, to the right in terms of its rhetoric, in terms of the the policies it's um, advocating for. Um, and whether or not that's, you know, losing, whether or not the party is losing out on more moderate voters. Um, and, and as and a point Megan made earlier about, you know, that's, that's also going to vary state by state. Um, but, yeah, that's that's a big concern. And and you hear you, you see even this election cycle, uh, the concern among Republican Party, even Republican Party leaders where, you know, earlier this election cycle, you had Mitch McConnell talking about candidate quality, worried that. You know the republican party the the nominees within the party who are advancing out of primaries in various states were too extreme to the point where it was going to cost them in the general election. So I think this is an on this is an ongoing conversation for the Republican Party about how far are they shifting and are they shifting too far to to cost them in terms of electoral politics?
1: yeah, and as I mentioned at the start, uh, um, <clears throat> evidence of this is a former powerful voice in the u s House of Representatives, Liz. Cheney, along with Adam Kinzinger, uh, both um, very conservative uh, Republicans campaigning for Democrats uh, in some states uh, this election cycle. Uh, Dave in Cedar Rapids writes us an email. He says both parties need to turn down the temperature on their rhetoric uh, that the other party is a threat to democracy. It may appeal to rabid red meat partisans, he writes, but it turns off independents. Megan, let me hand you that comment. Uh, Dave in Cedar Rapids, uh, what do you make of it? Is is, is he onto something?
2: Um, so so to be like quite frank, I actually don't think that I, I think that's sort of both sides in an issue that's not both sides. Um, you know, there is one party who has consistently denied the results of the last election. Um, you know, you have Republican candidates in Wisconsin, which is already an extremely gerrymandered state, at like for the state legislature, uh, you know, saying things like, "If I win, you'll never have a Democratic governor again," uh, because we'll make like we will institute rules so that Democrats can't win, um, and and so you do have election denying and um, democracy opponents in the Republican Party who have been given sort of that and and the, the anti-Semitism and like all of that is anti-democratic. Um, you have Republicans embracing Christian nationalist rhetoric that's also anti-democratic. Um, and so, you know, the the idea that one party is anti-democratic, like small D rule of the people, democratic, um, I, I think is pretty observable um, and it's hard to, to say that they're they're not. If you look at the evidence, um, and and that's a legitimate policy uh, for Democrats, the party, to take. Um, and so I think that this idea that polarization is such a problem and extremism is such a problem, um, that's true. But this this problem of anti democratic uh, strands in a major party when there are only two parties uh, is threatening to like our our system of government generally. Um, Right, and that's a pretty mainstream opinion of political scientists, um, and I think uh, of a lot of folks who have found themselves as independents, um, but are struggling with the rhetoric of the Republican Party, too. And so you can, you can, you can be uncomfortable with sort of some of the, the left-wing extremist policies, um, but I think this focus on democracy of the Democratic Party is, is not really an exaggeration.
1: Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, uh, we haven't touched on it this hour, but um, much talk about the attack last week, um, the assault on uh, Nancy Pelosi's husband. Um, Evidently, that attacker followed extreme right wing conspiracy theories for years. Uh, He told police he had other targets. Um, This is uh, a man who uh, clubbed her husband uh, with a hammer, telling police later he was on a, quote, suicide mission. He planned to target more politicians. This is according to documents, court documents. There's a lot of misinformation surrounding this uh, uh, news uh, reporting on this specific thing. So I want to get it out there. Uh, the attorney for David Dewane Depape, uh, he was in a pretrial custody uh, hearing. He pleaded not guilty to the attempted murder of Paul Pelosi. His attorney told reporters after the hearing that Depape's legal team would review a number of issues that might factor into his, his defense his quote vulnerability to political misinformation and his mental state um uh, chris comment on the the pelosi attacker and and uh, the the connection you see to um our political rhetoric
0: well yeah the, and that's the cons- the the bigger concern that there is that connection between the as the, the rhetoric becomes more intense um, uh, rhetoric become, uh, makes allusions to, to to violence, to extremism. Does that lead to, you know, does that lead to actions? And 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 can you make that connection there? And that's that's been a big concern for the last several years: is how that escalation in rhetoric was it going to lead to 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 real to real consequences where you would see something, you know, you'd see a horrible incident happen because of that escalation and you you know you mentioned there was mentioned at the top of the show that president biden's going to speak to this a little bit tonight about trying to to bring down that rhetoric but i think that it's it's become part of partisan politics unfortunately it's become part of electoral politics where you see you see this language being used and in, in the way that you know candidates will will talk about opponents um in in very harsh terms um it's going to be difficult to pull that back because it's uh, in, in some ways candidates and campaigns use that rhetoric to to try to mobilize voters through through negative emotions or or through activating emotions you know like fear.
1: You know, we have just a few minutes left with Chris Larimer and Megan Goldberg. Our Political Scientist for this Politics Wednesday edition. Uh, we have a number of callers. I'll, I'll go to our callers. We may not be able to comment on uh, all of the things the callers have to say, but we want to in, include their, their views. Um, if I can ask our callers from here on out uh, to be concise so we can uh, get your views in, all of you, if, if we can. Mary in Iowa City, welcome to the program.
5: Thank you. You know, the United States is the greatest experiment in history, in social history. How do we get along? And how is, is history going to end with this uh, election? And then, too, inflation can't end until that war in Ukraine is settled. So that's all I have to say. Thank you.
1: Mayor, Mary, thank you very much for your, your view. Let's jump to Altoona. Jeff is with us in Altoona. Thanks for joining
3: us, Jeff. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, my... Uh, my my. Uh uh suggestion was our, our governors over the years have not wanted to deal with minimum wage, and all around the Altoona area, lower wages have almost doubled to cause inflation because they haven't kept up with minimum wage uh, over the years. And I think that's something, if they increased it with inflation every three years or so and then increased it by it, it would certainly help out without these jumps uh, in, in lower wages. That's all I have to say. Thank you.
1: Jeff and Altoona, minimum wage, there's something we haven't heard a lot about during this campaign. Certainly in past years, we have talked a lot about uh, minimum wage. Tom is with us in Esterville. Tom, welcome to the program.
5: Hi. Thank you for this program. Uh, What frustrates me, Ben, is the fact that the Republican Party the Democrats about inflation When they present no plans whatsoever to try to correct it or make any changes, and once the election is over, everything is going to be the same. That's all I had to say.
1: Tom in Asterville, we had an Iowa, Iowa State University economist on yesterday pointing out that uh, he thought inflation, and I think many economists agree, uh, perhaps the, the, uh, one of the driving forces, of course, the war in Ukraine, uh, but also uh, some government spending. But a lot of this government spending, uh, comment on this perhaps, Megan, uh, was put in the pipeline uh, during the last administration on a bipartisan basis as well as during this administration, Right.
2: Yeah, you know, I I think that I my impression is that economists right now are are sort of arguing amongst themselves about what's really causing inflation and more importantly how to fix some of the problems. Um, you know, but I think that there's also a real focus on, um, you know, these spending programs are you know if they're driving inflation, they're also helping <laughs> helping a lot of people uh, to survive. Yes. Um, and so yeah. it's not sort of like we could just turn off you know these programs that are being funded by spending it's not always possible to just like turn them off and everyone is fine um you know it's it's supporting a lot of families and you know often children um who who need some government support mm-hmm.
1: in the final few minutes uh, megan and chris i wanted to have you um look at um uh, the most competitive races, uh, congressional races here in in Iowa, and, and see what you have your eyes on. Uh, we have all new districts, uh, all new congressional districts, all new legislative districts. Uh, Chris, um, you are there in the new second district in the Cedar Falls mm-hmm. Waterloo area. Um, we'll, we'll comment on what you see going on. We could have we could have anything happen. We currently have five of six uh, republicans in congress that could switch or we could get six of six republicans couldn't we
0: yeah i think it's you know really three out of the four u.s house races in iowa i think you can make an argument are relatively competitive i think the the second congressional district as you mentioned where i am as well as the third congressional district down by des moines in south central iowa with congresswoman axney are probably the, the, the most competitive um but but certainly up here in the second congressional district, you know, where the it's you're talking about two well known candidates. Um obviously the incumbent, Congresswoman Hinson is the incumbent and is known in that way. Uh but her challenger, State Senator Liz Mathis, has a similar background in terms of both of them being have having experience on television as um uh, as television anchors. Uh State Senator Mathis has, you know, relatively high name recognition as a result of that as well as serving in the state senate out of the Cedar Rapids area. So you know, I think that's going to be and, and, and party registration is extremely tight in this district in terms between Democrats and Republicans. And you're seeing millions of dollars and a very competitive fundraising race on both sides. So, I, you know, I, I think this one is really going to come down to back to what we talked about at the beginning of the show about, about turnout. You know, I mentioned youth voter mm. turnout, youth voter turnout, at least in Iowa, among 18 to 24 year olds was up near 37, 38 percent in 2018. In 2010 and 2014, it was down around 24%, 25%. So what I'm looking at is, you know, is that number for that age group, for that age cohort, is that back up to that 2018 level? And if it is, you would expect to see more competitive races, Democrats competing in the closer races for Democratic candidates. If it's close to that 2014 level, then maybe that's one reason why uh, uh, Republicans w- would end up winning some of these tight races.
1: Mm-hmm. Megan, what is your comment on our very competitive congressional races here in Iowa?
2: Yeah, you know, I think I agree. I'm also in the new Iowa, too. Uh, and it, it is, I think, yeah. pretty competitive, um, especially when you're considering an incumbent is running uh, and it's not an open race, although it's only a one-term incumbent. So, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I, do, I do think that Chris is pretty much exactly on target with which races are competitive and which aren't. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, I think that a lot of these candidates have been making, uh, especially on the Democratic side, at least from what I've seen, um, you know, making a concerted effort on campus to really focus on that youth vote, uh, sort of with the idea, I think, that uh, the youth vote is going to benefit Democrats more than it's going to benefit Republicans just because of the ballot, partisan balance among young people. Um, So I think there's a real focus on young voters, which I feel like I say every cycle, but it's definitely there this time as well.
1: Okay, I want to thank you for joining us uh, this hour. Chris Larimer of the University of Northern Iowa, Megan Goldberg of Cornell College. Thank you for your uh, final stretch thoughts on this election. We appreciate it.
2: Thanks, Ben.
0: Thank you, Ben.
1: And thanks for all the input from our listeners. Sorry we didn't get to uh, everyone.
3: The Garden Variety Newsletter brings the gardening community to you. Together, we'll learn about all things horticulture, celebrate our successes, and gather expert answers to your questions. Subscribe at IPR.org GV.
1: Tomorrow on the program, we'll focus on a new statewide campaign to reverse widespread social acceptance of marijuana among young people in the state. We hope you'll tune in. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.